First John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. This is the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Uh, let's take a moment and let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to uh, really speak to us during this time. Uh, God, we, uh, we thank you, God, that uh, you do not leave us uh, alone and you do not leave us to even our own voices. But uh, there is a greater voice that speaks, and that is your voice. And you speak to us um, through your word, and uh, your spirit uh, speaks to us and confirms uh, the things that we uh, need to hear. And so we pray, God, that your word and spirit would be active in our lives today. And that you would um, you would open our eyes and ears to uh, to see what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. We pray, Amen. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, you know, this will probably be like my only uh, maybe joke or lighthearted comment I'll make, but uh, Jen has uh, she hates my hair and she calls it disgusting. And so she said on the Zoom call. Uh, she said, "Make sure I don't turn my head because I guess from the front it doesn't look as bad, but if I turn my head." Um, then it looks pretty bad. So <clears throat> let me try to focus and keep my face straight. And uh, I mean, let's let's get into the Word of God now. Uh, I was on a Zoom call with pastors from New York, and I was able to hear uh, from some of the local Black ministers in New York City as you know, they they just shared how they were doing personally and how their churches were doing and how they were leading their churches through this time. And you know, in this call, they they gave some good counsel, uh, especially to pastors of uh, non-black churches, uh, which is us, and they said, uh, you know, when it comes to issues of race and racial injustice, uh, they, they said, just take the long view, uh, because, uh, you know, it's it's easy to just kind of simply react, uh, I guess, to the news cycle, or to simply react by giving uh, a single sermon, or to give a teaching or a seminar on some of these issues of racial injustice, and then kind of move on from it. But they said that, um, you know, if this is an if this is a God given uh, opportunity for, uh, I guess, us as a society and as a nation to to grow and to um, to repent of things, then he said, uh, you have to go deeper and you really have to reflect uh, on your own lives and your own hearts, because this is not going to be something that is uh, fixed quickly. And so, if anything is going to move the needle when it comes to you know issues of systemic injustice, then um, the truth of the matter is it probably won't come cheap and there is usually always a price to pay uh, when seeking justice and if the motivation for engaging in some of these issues if it does come from a, a place of shame or guilt which i think is, is very easy then um, i doubt we'll be able to be i doubt we will be willing to pay whatever price it takes to pay but i think in order to pay whatever price uh, the price of justice is I think it has to come from a place of genuine love, uh, not sentimental love, but a real heart of love. And so because of that, uh, especially in this time, we are going to go through this letter of 1 John because that's what it's about. Uh, it's about walking in the light and it's about love. It's about loving one another. And, you know, I was, um, I was actually tempted to uh, skip a sermon today 
and just read the entire letter <laughs> in its entirety. And uh, I even looked at how long it would take. It would take about 15 minutes because it, it, it kind of is meant to be a sermon. You know, it's a very powerful read. And if uh, I encourage you if, you, if you have time, if you have like 15 minutes, just do it in one sitting and maybe read it aloud and receive it as if it's being preached to you. But uh, if you read the entire book all at once, what you're going to realize is it's a book that sounds a little bit repetitive. And uh, that's the point of it. Uh, it doesn't reason things out in kind of like this linear fashion, like one of Paul's epistles where uh, a, an argument is being built. But it's a little bit like this, this circle because John goes around and around and around with the same message of walk in the light and love one another. Right? Walk in the light and love one another. And I think that repetition, repetition is something that's intentional because he wants to amplify a message that seems so simple. But you see, it's really the simple messages that we probably need repeated to us over and over and over again. And that's what we do when we teach children. We have to repeat our message to them all the time. In our household, one of the things that we say in our house is, we say, hey, people are more important than our things. So whenever our kids fight uh, with each other over a toy or they refuse to share something, uh, we say, we ask them, hey, what's more important? people or your things and we have to continually repeat that over and over again a very simple point but sometimes it's a simple messages that bear repeating now we are like children in that way because we need to hear things over and over again as well especially the messages that we think are pretty simple and that's actually how john addresses his recipients he, he addresses uh, the recipients as children little children not in a way that's condescending but in a way that is like this old gentle grandfather who might address uh, his entire family and this community they are experiencing a crisis and he is speaking into their crisis by saying walk in love and love one another now what is this crisis that they're going through uh, the crisis that they're experiencing is a sect has formed within their community and this sect has been teaching some heterodox things concerning Jesus, and as a result, it stirred up some trouble within the community. Uh, this group eventually left the church, and as a result, there was some strife. And so John's strategy during this crisis is basically to go back to the simple message that they have heard from the beginning, probably a message that he preached to them way in the beginning, which is this, to abide in Christ and to love one another. And so I think First John has a lot to say to us, especially in this season. I think it has a lot to say to us in this particular moment of time with uh, the things going on in our nation and in our cities. And so I don't want us to receive this word in like the abstract because uh, when it comes to messages of love, it's very easy to do that and say, yeah, yeah, I know, I have to love neighbor. But in view of current events, in view of the unjust killing of black bodies, in view of some of the hatred that people are showing in response, in view of general divisiveness in this country, I want us to think about these things as we look at this book. Because John's call to love is not in the abstract, but he tells his community to love in deeds and in truth. He is very concrete about it, and there is a reason for that. Now, I... I have to warn you, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about some things that I don't think I would normally talk about, um, not because they're controversial, but it's just a little bit dense. And uh, some of you might find it a little uh, uninteresting, but uh, try to stay with me because uh, I assure you there's a reason for why I'm going to talk about some of these things. Now, there was a heresy in the ancient church, and this heresy originated in the late first century, and it developed in the second century, and this heresy was called Gnosticism. 
one of the features of Gnostic beliefs is there's this uh, dualistic structure between the material created world and the immaterial spiritual world. And what they believed is that these two worlds were in fundamental opposition to one another and that the material created world was something that was inherently bad and evil. Now, uh, if that, uh, that, there's some elements of that that could sound like Christianity, which is probably why people in the early church were drawn to it. But uh, just to clarify, when the Bible says God created the world, what does he say? He says it was good. So the created world wasn't inherently evil according to the biblical perspective uh, because uh, God created it and he said it was good. And that has important implications for how you understand even something like Jesus Christ. You see, in the Gnostic perspective, if the material world is something that is inherently evil, then Jesus couldn't have really been human because coming in the flesh would have been a violation of his goodness and perfection. And so you see in that construct, the physical body becomes like this prison that we need to be set free from. And they thought that Jesus came into the world to give us this special knowledge to unlock the spark of divinity within us so that we can be set free from our physical bodies and kind of uh, into this pure spiritual existence. Okay, that's it. That's that's the part that I wouldn't normally talk about, but here's, here's why I'm talking about it. The reason why I'm telling you this is because it does relate to 1 John, because commentators think that some of the early elements uh, of uh, the false teaching here may have been early strands of Gnostic thinking. Now, this letter actually predates uh, Gnosticism as a heresy, uh, so it couldn't have been this full-blown Gnosticism, but they think that the early strands of that thought uh, could have been present in this community. So when you read these first two verses and you're saying, why is John emphasizing that he saw Jesus, that they saw Jesus with their eyes, that they looked upon him, that they touched him with their hands? It's because some of these ideas and these false teachings that were spreading in the church, John is emphasizing this. Look, Jesus was a real physical human being. His birth was real. His bodily existence was real and his bodily resurrection was real. I saw him with my own eyes, I heard him with my own ears, I touched him with my own hands. And he is confronting Gnosticism. Now, uh, I guess the question is, you know, Gnosticism is this ancient heresy and it seemingly maybe has no relevance to us today, uh, but does it? Well, it depends on you who you ask. So for example, um, you know, usually coming from Anglicans and Catholics, uh, they a couple of them have been saying, actually, there is a form of Gnosticism that is still present today. So uh, there's this Anglican bishop, his name is Tom Wright, and he wrote this article in the L London Times. And he says uh, the whole transgender movement is a, basically a modern form of Gnostic thinking because it disregards the physical body in search of something that is more authentic and pure from within. But uh, what's more interesting to me and relevant to current events uh, is actually this book that I had to read for school by a theologian named Cameron Carter. Uh, he wrote a book about race from a theological perspective. And I gotta be honest, it was one of, uh, you know, this book is like incredibly smart and probably smarter uh, for me to like really understand. It was really dense. I had a hard time understanding everything in the book, but uh, I think I got at least a strand of what he was saying. And uh, this is what he's saying. This is how it relates to Gnosticism. He looks at one of the early church fathers and uh, his name is Irenaeus. He looks at his argument against the Gnostic heresy, and he uses that argument as a vision for uh, shaping the racial imagination. Uh, so this early church father, when he's writing against the Gnostics, what he says is, when you remove the humanity of Jesus Christ from the person of Christ, then you also remove his Jewish identity, 
and you also remove the real ways in which he has been embedded into Israel's history. And he sees this and he says, that's kind of how the West has approached uh, our understanding of what it means to be human. So in other words, in search to define the essence of what it means to be a person, he, his critique on the modern West is he says the modern West has said the external of who we are is not consequential to who we are on the inside. And the implication is saying that one's racial identity then is not consequential to the essence of who a person is. And so uh, just to kind of bring it down uh, to maybe our everyday life, you know, when people say things like, I don't see race or I don't see color, you know, it may be coming from a well-intentioned place and kind of trying to get across the sentiment that, look, I see you as an individual and not through these racial stereotypes, but what it actually does is it assumes that your external racial identity has no connection to who you are as a person. And this theologian Carter would probably say, hey, that's how the Gnostics would have thought about it. I, now, I grew up in a town that was pretty diverse uh, in terms of black and white populations, but uh, our family, we were the only Asian family in town. And so when I grew up, I actually didn't have any uh, you know, Asian friends. And when you are the only Asian family in town, uh, you can look at your uh, Asian identity in a negative way because it's something that makes you different from everybody else. So I grew up looking at my Korean American identity as something that was a negative rather than as a positive. And that's probably why my Korean is so bad, because I never embraced uh, the Korean culture. That's probably why I listened to uh, Nirvana and refused to listen to K-pop. And who knew how popular K-pop would become in the world uh, back then in the 90s? But, uh, and I think the hope was, uh, if you could just see who I am on the inside and look past this uh, Korean face that makes me different from you, then maybe you will accept me. But what I should have realized is this, you know, my Korean face and my and Korean identity is a part of who I am on the inside. It's not disconnected from who I am. And again, uh, to say that who you are on the inside is disconnected from who you are on the outside would kind of have been a Gnostic approach to defining personhood. And it was only after college where I began to embrace uh, my, you know, my ethnic identity, my racial identity and see it. Uh, as a potential gift rather than as a curse. Now, I think other people experience that in uh, other cultures as well. Uh, I was talking to a teacher recently and she was telling a story where her kids were drawing these self-portraits. And these are five-year-old kids, um, similar age to my oldest daughter. And uh, when a five-year-old black boy drew a self-portrait of himself, uh, he drew himself with a peach crayon rather than with a brown crayon. Uh, now, I'm not sure why he did that, but if he drew himself with a peach crayon because he didn't want to be brown, that's really heartbreaking, right? That is very heartbreaking. You know why racism is so evil from a theological perspective? Racism deconstructs God's good work in creation. God created the world and God created us in his own image and he said it is very good. Who we are as constructed by our creator is meant to be good. And racism subverts that and says, the way God created you is not good, and that makes you unworthy. And I think that's where we begin to, uh, we start to experience maybe some of the toxic forms of shame that isn't necessarily rooted in sin, where it should be rooted, but uh, one that is rooted in something that God meant uh, to be good, which God created to be good. And if you think about it, isn't that part of how the serpent deceived Adam and Eve? 
He tried to make them think that something was not good in this good world that God had created. And so John is saying this, to bring it back to the text, he says, don't believe the distortions of these false teachers who are questioning whether Jesus was human and opt for this kind of higher immaterial spiritual existence. Jesus was a real human being. I saw him with my own eyes. I heard him with my own ears and I touched him with my own hands in his full Jewishness, in the full history of who he is and the connection to Israel's history that he had. And that, I think, is something that we need to know as well, because how we see Jesus also has impl implications for how we understand humanity in general. Now, by the way, just so I'm clear, I'm talking about the goodness of who we are as created beings, because, of course, after the fall, sin enters into the world and everything gets tainted and we all become unworthy uh, in God's eyes, not because of how he created us, but because of the existence and the reality of sin which is why God breaks fellowship with humanity. But here is why the second half of this passage speaks to us, because John says that his proclamation of Jesus Christ was so that they might have fellowship with him as they share in fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, what's interesting about that is, uh, well, one, John's emphasis on the proclamation of the gospel, it's not stated in terms of salvation, but he states it in terms of fellowship. Fellowship. Now, fellowship is a word that has to do with relationship and communion. And the manifestation of the word of life in the incarnation of Jesus is what repairs that fellowship that was broken in the Garden of Eden. The manifestation of the word of life is what enables you and me, with all the pollution of sin that resides within us, to have fellowship with God. And, of course, this kind of fellowship is more than uh, just kind of meeting occasionally, going out to eat after church. This kind of fellowship is this deep communion that is characterized by a depth of love that was so deep and so profound and so sacrificial, a depth of love that was ultimately displayed on the cross when Jesus died. Now, as John talks about this, this kind of vertical dimension of fellowship, he also ties it intimately with this horizontal dimension of fellowship. Fellowship with God cannot be separated with fellowship from one another. Relationship with God cannot be separate from our relationship with one another. If you separate the two, if you claim to have fellowship with God while you walk in the darkness, John says you're deceived and he calls you a liar in the very next passage. What does he mean to walk in the darkness? In chapter two, he says this, it means to hate your brother. Hate is what characterizes walking in the darkness while love characterizes walking in the light. Now, I think I can see why John connects walking in the light with uh, loving one another, at least from a conceptual perspective. You know, uh, I got these, uh, I got my daughters these like glow-in-the-dark uh, stars. And, you know, they, in our house, they, they share a bunk bed and my oldest sleeps on the top bunk and my youngest sleeps on the bottom bunk. And I thought it would be cool, hey, let's stick these glow-in-the-dark stickers uh, above you so that when you're going to sleep at night, you know, you kind of see these stars and it's like, oh, maybe you're in like outer space, right? So for my oldest, you know, we stick the stars on the ceiling. And for my youngest, we stick the stars on the bottom of the bunk bed. Uh, but the thing is about these stars, in order for them to shine, uh, they have to be exposed to light. And if they're not exposed to light, they just stay in the dark. So, uh, you know, my oldest daughter, her stars actually will be exposed to light. Unfortunately for my youngest daughter, right, under the bunk bed is kind of dark, so her stars are actually not exposed to light, so her 
her stars don't really glow in the dark. You know, uh, John is saying this, you know, if you walk in the light, right, just like these stars, if they are exposed to the light, if they are in the light, what ends up happening is you begin to glow. What does that mean? Then you should love one another. And he's a bit more forceful that, than that. He says, the way you know that you are in the light, the way you know that you are walking in fellowship with God is actually based on how you love one another. It's like saying, uh, the way you know these little glow stars have been uh, in the dark, have been in the light, is whether or not they are glowing. And if they are not glowing, then they are not walking in the light. Here's what uh, this moment in time um, of, you know, a lot of racial injustice gives us as we think about our relationships and as we think about our experiences. I think this moment in time, it gives us an opportunity uh, to really reflect whether we are walking in the light or whether we are walking in darkness. Uh, it gives us an opportunity to see if there is any hatred or bitterness within our hearts or if there is love uh, expressed in our deeds. It gives us an opportunity to see if we have a love for God based on whether we have a love for others. I was reading this book uh, by John Perkins. And uh, if you don't know who John Perkins is, uh, he, he's pretty well known. Uh, he's an incredibly godly man, and he has touched many people. I think by now he's in his late 80s, maybe almost 90. And so he's lived through a lot in his life. Uh, he was born on a southern plantation, and his mother died due to malnutrition uh, when he was seven months old. Malnutrition when he was seven months old. He lost his older brother, who had just come back from serving in World War II. You know how? When his brother, who was a war veteran, was killed by a white police officer. Uh, he was somebody who was active in the civil rights movement, and uh, he was arrested and jailed in 1970. But do you know why he was jailed? He just showed up to jail to post bail for some civil rights demonstrators, and then the police arrested him, and then they beat him with their fists. You see, one of the reasons why he is actually so revered uh, is because he is a man of love. And someone said that love would be Perkins' legacy. The reason they say that is because, you know, if anyone had good reasons to hate white people, uh, it should have been him with all of his experiences. Uh, but the reason why he has made such a big impact on reconciliation and especially uh, within churches is because he was willing to love both uh, the oppressed and the oppressor. Now, in this book I was reading, Perkins, he says two things that struck me. Uh, first, he said this. Uh, he said his regret in ministry is, I mean, if you could guess, what do you think his regret in ministry would be after everything he has done? He says this. His regret in ministry is not doing enough for poor white people. Can you believe that, right? What kind of black man with his experiences with racism says that? But this is what he says. He says, you know, poor white folks are in such a sad condition. No one likes them. Black folks don't like them because they're racist. Immigrants don't like them because they compete for jobs. White folks don't like them because they're failures. They don't have a Jesse Jackson or an Al Sharpton to fight for them. Poor white folks have been rejected by everyone. They're on their own. Now, keep in mind, he wrote this, this book was published in 2009, several years before Trump was elected. Now, it's only a man, I think, who is walking closely in the light of Jesus who can have this kind of love for people 
including people who probably hate him. And that's a taste of his character. And you can see why he is so revered. And one U.S. senator even called him a modern saint. But I also don't want to give you the impression that, um, you know, John Perkins expressed his love uh, kind of just by being nice. Uh, you know, he fought for justice and reconciliation. And in that fight, he spoke the truth in love. And so the second thing that left an impression on me was uh, he would talk about uh, his visits to white churches and he would be invited to speak at white churches often. And as he would meet with these pastors, he would challenge these white pastors and he would ask them, how are you helping your church learn to love? And they would respond, well, if they believe the right things, then they will love. And in this book, he says, well, that, that's not my experience. I've seen plenty of white churches with good doctrine that didn't treat me or black folks with love. And the difference between white churches and black churches is that white churches tend to put their focus on uh, doctrine and heady things, while black churches tend to put their focus on the practice of what it means to live out the faith. Uh, but for white churches, if they all they do is emphasize right believing, then he says, you know, that won't necessarily lead to a loving church. And the reason why that stuck out is that that pricked me to the heart because I heard him asking me that. I heard him asking me that about Good News Church. Um, what have you done to help your church learn to love? And I heard myself give the same answer as this white pastor. And that's something that I will have to think about and meditate on and repent of. Now, as we make our way through 1 John, uh, here's what I want us to do. Uh, I want us to reflect on whether um, we are a people who love. Simple, right? Simple message. Are we a people who love? Uh, but I don't want us to think about love in the abstract or in a sentimental way of like, yeah, I, you know, I care. I, I you know, I have compassion and care for uh, certain people because John doesn't talk about love in the abstract. He says in chapter three, verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I think that is more relevant today in a world of social media than it has ever been. Uh, he wants our love to be active and not idle. And that means we aren't waiting for this opportunity to love, but we are pursuing opportunities to love. He wants us to love with courage because there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Do you love others in a way that reflects one who is walking in the light? Or is there hatred and bitterness towards a person or towards a group that has led you to either attack them or to be indifferent to their suffering. And I suspect the deeper that we search our hearts, the more we will find to confess and to repent about. And if that is the case, that will be a good sign. That will mean that God is being gracious to us. That will mean that God is forming us in such a way that when it comes time to pay the cost, whatever that cost is, in loving others in the pursuit of justice, then by God's grace, we will do it because loving others will always matter to us, even when the news cycle ends. And, you know, I think this is uh, our conviction um, as elders and for myself of what where our church needs to grow in. Uh, we need to be more loving people. We have to be a loving church, uh, and it has to be genuine and a work of the Holy Spirit renovating our hearts. Let's pray.